Good afternoon. Welcome to Navara FM here on Resonance 104.4 FM, London's number one radio station. My name is Aaron Bastani and Aaron Bastani on Twitter. Today I have the great pleasure of being joined by fellow co-founder and senior editor of Navara Media, the one and only, the immarkessible, the perhaps irredeemable James Butler at Pierce Penless. Hi, James. <laughs> hi, hi, hi. Today, what else are we going to be talking about? Look, we're going to be talking about the chicken coup, hashtag chicken coup. We had Corbyn stays, we had uh, Corbyn for all, and now today's trending hashtag is chicken coup, because there was an attempt at a coup instigated last weekend uh, by much of the Parliamentary Labour Party against Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, since then, since the resignations of a bunch of people nobody'd ever heard of, and Coffey, and uh, I don't know these people, I don't think anybody's heard of these people. Like I said, and I... I mean, I have, but you I'm have, a nerd. Like I said, and I'm a Bastani, remember the names... I mean, remember them, because you're going to have to Google them to find out who they are. They went, Hillary Benn was, of course, sacked at one in the morning. I mean, that was what triggered it all, rather funny. You can sort of picture the, the phone call between Seamus Mill and sort of mouthing at Corbyn what to say to, uh, you know, I'm sure he was crying, Hillary Benn. They're all crying this week, aren't they, at the other end of the phone. We then had resignations of some... Buck up, I mean. Buck up, I know, it's pathetic. I mean, well, look, look, you're a millionaire aristocrat, <laughs> Hillary. I'm sure you'll get over it, whatever happens. Right, yes. You then yeah. had a load of big-name resignations. Heidi Alexander, uh, Lisa, Lisa Nandy's gone. You know, people from the soft left, right? Uh, yeah. And it looks like now, on Monday, there will be a leadership bid of some kind. I'm told it's going to be by Eagle. Um, a source close to me told me that. You know, I love it so much. I now am closer to the shadow cabinet than anyone from the BBC. Don't say that. Like Simon Peter, they'll deny you thrice. Because they're so full of garbage, so full of crap, that they're not going to be working with them anymore. They're just... This is something we're going to talk yeah, about yeah, on today's yeah, show. Yeah, yeah. James, I mean, your yeah, thoughts? I, 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 so the, the, having said sort of buck up, I actually think there's a real danger at the moment of people sort of abusing... Ex-Shadow Cabinet mem- members, um, not that, that they're exactly innocent in this regard themselves. Um, and there's a lot of sort of rumour and, and, and nonsense flying around, and I think, uh, I think we should try and cut through some of that today. Uh, I think probably the first uh, thing to talk about is exactly what the choices are here. And it's a very, very difficult situation. I mean, we shouldn't pretend that... that that Corbyn's life is going to be easy from now on. It's certainly not going to be if he if he manages to stay, and I think he probably will manage to stay. Then there will be a huge impasse in the Labour Party, which there doesn't seem to be any easy resolution to. Uh, it's been interesting. I've been following the discussions online about this among sort of uh, the the left of Labour and the Labour base, and a couple of things strike me. Is that some of them are thinking, well, you know, is there a compromise solution that can be found? And I think there's a mistake that happens there, right? And there's, the mistake is to think that this is actually about what people say it's about. It's, I don't think it is about Corbyn's capacity as a, a parliamentary speaker or as an organiser within his own party or as a parliamentary operative. Um, I, I certainly wouldn't necessarily defend him on those grounds. I don't think he is particularly good at that kind of Westminster politics. But that isn't really what the argument is about. He could be the smoothest operator, the slickest parliamentary performer, and these people would still have a deep objection to him because of his politics. And this struggle is, in large part, about the place, the political place, of Corbyn's kind, or indeed any kind, of socialism within the Labour Party. That's what the argument is about. Uh, 
many of the people leading this coup want to see it decisively settled that this kind of politics is an artifact of the past and no longer has any place in Westminster and no longer has any place in the national conversation. So that's what the struggle is about. Uh, so I don't think I don't think these kind of arguments about you know whether there could be a, a possible left wing successor therefore hold much water because the conflict is largely political. Uh, I mean, the other thing is, right, is that because there has been an atrophy of the left within the Labour Party for certainly three decades, I would say probably, you know, five, really, um, there, there aren't really any suitable replacements for him. Um, the Parliamentary Party, if they hate anyone more than Corbyn, probably hate Macdonald more than him. So that's a non-starter. Clive Lewis, uh, a name much touted, has ruled himself out. Uh, you know, rightly, he says that this is the democratic will of the membership and he's not going to challenge it or override it. The other thing to say about him is that the Parliamentary Party would have another way of attacking his politics by proxy by saying simply he's too inexperienced and there's, there's a, you know, they're not wrong. But, uh, but, but that's, that's you know, that's one thing. The other thing to say here is that this is also a battle about the status of democracy in the party and with whom deciding power mm -hmm. lies. And the parliamentary party says it lies with them. Um, and the base says it lies with them. And that is the other side of this conflict. And that is one of the things that the parliamentary party want to resolve absolutely in their favour. And if they're allowed to do it, then it is likely that the base will you know, not be able to exercise any kind of power in, in those terms. So, I, I mean, as the discussions go on today, I think we'll talk about things beyond the Labour Party as well, because while this is all going on, there's a, there are huge things happening in Britain and constitutionally. One of the, the things that is actually really quite remarkable about this is that the, the right of the party has chosen to launch into an internecine civil war in a period in which the party would be at its strongest and most able to attack the Conservative Party, which is in disarray. Uh, it is an extremely serious time in which the what is acceptable to say in this country and what uh, mainstream political discourses in this country is changing very, very quickly and instead of actually doing something about it and trying to make its mark on it, uh, collapsing into factional infighting seems to me to be an extremely stupid thing to do. But what do I know? I'm not a Labour Party MP and thank God for that. Um, in, terms of, in terms of the soft left option that's been touted by people who I would say should know better. I'm not going to criticise them for being bad people. I just think we disagree about this, you know, this particular juncture in the history of and this is history what we're saying right now, this is a very important mm -hmm. moment history of left politics its interaction with organizations parliamentary politics the labor party very specifically clearly in this case now over the <clears throat> several days sort of preceding the weekend i had lots of ngo types you know very liberal they come from nice families don't they you know their mums didn't have hands warped by bleach their, <laughs> their fathers don't have calluses on their hands they don't have to sag these people off too much well uh, yeah <laughs> well you know well these are people you actually probably aren't aware of okay, uh, these are very okay, different people okay. very different people and um, oh I love how we're going to do this show today it's going to be great the last week's show did great so stats very good. Lots of people listen to this, and now you know lots of people misread. Sam, I'm, I'm criticising you. Maybe I am. Probably not. I'm probably referring to somebody else. That's often how these things get misread. And you know they were saying, well, Lisa and Andy, what do you think? Or X, Y, Z, what do you think? And it's like, look, this is a party of four hundred thousand people. It's meant to be the the parliamentary uh, representative of a trade union movement of six point five million people. The TUC, six point five million members. Okay, forty. 
metropolitan NGO types with a Ouija board and an A3 piece of paper and some highlighters don't get to decide the next leader of the Labour Party. I'm sorry. I'm sorry to break it to you. You aren't Superman. This isn't the Fantastic Four, okay? This is a mass membership organisation. There are democratic processes to have a new leader. If you want to do it, just like the PLP, they should go through the proper channels. But 40, 50 people aren't going to decide, you know, Corbyn is a... And this is the thing now, what we're seeing is... Lewis is being touted as X, Y, Z. That's not going to happen because Lewis doesn't want to do it. The Shadow Cabinet doesn't want him. The membership doesn't want him. And Corbyn's going nowhere, right? Don't listen to George Eaton. He is going nowhere. And don't listen to George Eaton about anything anyway. He's going nowhere. And look at all the... I mean, we're going to talk about this for five minutes, I guess. Mm -hmm. A few minutes. Mm -hmm. Look at all of the barriers here. Let's say Lewis does run. Okay, let's say he runs. Do we know if he's got the mental resilience to deal with the crap that'll be thrown at him from the Parliamentary Labour Party? Do we know his history? How much muck there's on him? Does he have much name recognition amongst the membership? What would happen from the rest of the party? Do they actually want a unity candidate? Or do they want somebody who in the short term they can, you know, carry on throwing mud at and in the long term can replace with their own person? I suspect that's what they want. Now... This option being touted of a, sef- a sort of soft left candidate is from elements of the Labour Party who I, you know, it's a totally justifiable worldview. Look at that party as an umbrella party of a, you know, heterogeneous and wide ranging views, um, a wide ranging uh, set of views, values and principles. Fine. Labourism, as we would historically mm-hmm. call it, right? But I think that's fundamentally misunderstanding what's happening right now. It's fundamentally misunderstanding the nature of power. Which I think actually for a generation, I think this is something Mason talks about a lot. I think it's actually correct. Our generation on the left, and this goes back to what people on the liberal left were saying to me a couple of weeks ago, fundamentally don't understand power. This is not about compromise, conciliation. Particular people within the Parliamentary Labour Party want to win. Mm. They want to get their way. That's it. Simple as that. And they'll defy a democratic mandate. They'll defy the wishes of the trade union leaderships. They'll defy whoever they want to, because it's about power getting your way. Yes, I think that's true. And I think it, I think it is true that very often people fail to, to, you know, people take at their word things that are power plays. Um, and that that's a real danger, actually, right now. Um, but look, I mean, <laughs> you know, uh, I, I think you're probably right that Corbyn isn't going anywhere, because the problem here, actually, is that... Uh, the idea was that this kind of space of resignations, which I mean, we should say openly, was planned long before the referendum result. Um, and one of the things that it looks like to me is that they expected actually the referendum result to be a week remain yeah. Yeah. and to be dealing with this in less of a constitutional crisis. And then at some point on the Friday have uh, have gone, oh, actually, OK, well, are we going to press ahead with this? Yes. OK, let's do it. Um, which means that this argument about there being a, a general election coming soon is a, a bit awkward uh, as a fit with some, some of what they're doing. Um, it also incidentally looks increasingly like the Conservative Party leadership don't want a general election anytime soon. Um, that does not surprise me because they're not sure that with any of the candidates they might elect, they, they will win. Um, that, that is it. Um, I mean, Boris's, uh, Boris's own polling... Right, which he commissioned, showed that only he could get a majority over uh, Corbyn. Right, that was his own polling, which he was going to use for the Tory leadership yeah, campaign. Yeah, yeah. Right, and so a lot of the assumptions. There was two assumptions. I'll be quick because I spoke for a lot just a moment ago. There were two assumptions coming out of the Labour coup plotters who I agree intended to do this regardless. First one was it'd be a weak remain, and the second one was that Boris would be the Tory candidate, and neither transpired to be the case. And I know that the first is true almost 100% because Angela Eagle 
on Friday was not at her party AGM, her constituency Labour Party AGM, their annual general meeting. She didn't turn up. Okay, so clearly she was up to something. And on the Thursday, she seemed very confident of her remain whilst on the doorstep. I'm told by local members up there. And then on the Saturday, this kicks off uh, with with regard to Hillary Benn. So I think that was almost certain. And then with Boris, I said immediately after, you know, people say, Aaron, you've got this wrong or this wrong. We all get things right and wrong. Okay, so I'm not going to say I'm some genius. I said Boris Johnson was tainted goods. It was very unlikely he'd be the Tory candidate. And they were saying, no, no, he's going to be the Tory candidate. He'll destroy us. Look, if you're the CBI, big business, this guy has just dealt a blow to British capitalism, which the far left could only dream about. You don't want him as the prime minister. And yes. Bor- Boris knows that. And yes. also, well, let me, sorry, just finish this point, James. Boris knows that and he knows he'll get a second, second crack at this and he wouldn't waste this opportunity. Uh, yes, I think there is some of that there. Um, the the old rule about Tory Tory leadership contest is that the front runner never wins. Um, I, whether that's actually true or not, I, you know, arguable. Um, I, I don't I don't think this is a d- deliberate failure on Boris's part at all. Um, you know, this this looks very much like a, a, a really ruthless and Machiavellian move on the part of. Uh, of Michael Gove. Yeah. Uh, reports from inside the Boris camp is that he looked ashen and disconsolate uh, all of yesterday, which is gratifying, at least. Um, but, yeah, I mean, this is, this is a wide-open contest, and it's a contest, actually, that, that makes any oncoming general election look rather difficult to predict. Um, on that, and uh, I, I would say that I think either way now, actually... Uh, we probably look at the next general election of a, certainly a, a handful, possibly a swathe, of seats going to UKIP in the north. Um, I, I think that's probably quite likely because I think whatever's going to happen now in terms of stay or go, there is a narrative about uh, betrayal and resentment that can be capitalised on by the far right. To me, that is like the big political matter here and it's one of the reasons that I think actually people should be vociferously defending Jeremy Corbyn because he's one of the few representations of a a consistently pro-migrant politics within mainstream Westminster uh, debate and I think as soon as he goes the Labour Party does what the right of the Labour Party always wants it to do which is chase after a kind of soft or sometimes hard nationalism, um, which says, okay, limited redistribution, social settlement, but only for people who are born here. Uh, migration that is dangerous, uh, you know, that, that kind of thing. The kind of thing that, that Ed Miliband tried to pivot towards in the last general election and on which he lost. I mean, this is the thing, right? If there is one reason uh, I joined Labour last year and I publicly stated as much recently, clearly a lot of people are joining, 6,000 people have joined <clears throat> last few days. If there's one reason to join whilst Corbyn is leader, it's because it is a battle for a, an anti-racist party, effectively. The question is here, can Labour remain or become an anti-racist party and not slip into, which I think you're right, it would be a kind of, like I say, a red UKIP politics. Mm. You see that with Tom Watson, you see that with any of them, basically. Um, so I think that's 100% true. Um, 
yes, there's so much to talk about in terms of the plotters, where we go from here. And there's also that bigger European context because events are moving 100 miles an hour, not just here in Britain. Yes. It might, yes. It might feel like that. And I think <laughs> it actually, certainly does. Right. And we are certainly right now the epicenter of the crisis in the Eurozone. That probably sounded awful. What happened? Should <laughs> I just so- knock the mic? All right. That's fine. That's so, that's so unlike you, James. Yeah, I know. I know. I haven't slept for a week. Uh, well, join the club. No, I'm kidding. Um, you know, there's there's really, really big dynamics at work here. And yes, within those broader European international dynamics, it's crucial that we have an anti-racist leader of the Labour Party. Absolutely, right? Yeah. Um, t- t- can I say two things that are happening yes. in Europe right now? Yes. Uh, Sarkozy has come out with this proposal for a Schengen 2.0, right? So a much closer... Uh, union of core nations in Europe uh, with free movement between them but and Sarkozy says this is you know for people who can control or can actually control their borders so the idea here is that you'd have like an inner citadel of Europeanness uh, inside Fortress Europe itself um, and and that say so that is one of the ways that I think and I think that that builds very directly on uh, Europe's sense of what the the brexit vote was about about migration not wrong um, and uh, it's you know as we predicted, it's giving real real boost to to right wing or, or isolationist sentiments across Europe. Other thing that is quite worrying is today very very you know just in the past couple of hours we received news that the Austrian Constitutional Court has annulled the results of the presidential election. So it probably looks like. Uh, the, 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 it's possible that Austria gets a, a, a fascist president much quicker than what's, we thought. What, what's gonna, is it going to be recontested? What happens? Now? It was unclear. Is it a legal challenge, it, and then it will be overturned? Uh, it's unclear. When I last looked at it, yeah. I'm, I'm not sure what, what happens next. But, uh, but, but that is certainly boring. The other thing, of course, Marine Le Pen. Um, Victor Orban, all of the right across Europe, jumping on this, uh, you know, as 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 is their wont. Um, a couple of things, though, to return to Britain and to return to the Labour Party, um, and it's one of the things that actually speaks to this division in Europe. Um, look, one of the reasons that there is this kind, of what looks like actually an irresolvable conflict at the part at the centre of the Labour Party, is that what's taking place here is a couple of things mashed together by the very strange British political system. Um, and the insurgent new left, which has taken an electoral turn in Spain and in various other European countries, combines with the old traditional, you know, and has no avenue for expression, right, in the British political system. The British political system is very, very hostile to new parties or small parties. So it has now combined with the remnants of an old traditional left within the Labour Party with sort of soft or hard socialist legacies. Um, and this is like the conflict between Syriza and PASOK or Podemos and the PSOE, um, except within a single party. Right, exactly. And and that is partly an artefact of first past the post, which is why I think you're seeing a lot of conversation now about, well, actually, doesn't the result of this referendum and doesn't the sense of voicelessness that attends a lot of the constituencies across the North call for some kind of new constitutional settlement which yeah. moves away from first past the post and moves away from this this kind of very... Uh, this this thing that is supposed to pr- provide, incidentally, according to all political theorists, strong and stable states. Well, empirically, that was correct until about five years ago, and it's <laughs> yes. now becoming yeah. completely yeah. undone. I mean, the two yeah. big 
countries with FPTP first past the post, the United States and the UK, Trump is now the Republican Party candidate. I mean, so something's clearly gone very wrong. A few things. Uh, the Austrian uh, party that you're referring to, the Freedom Party, now people will be saying... Oh, don't use that word willy-nilly fascist. Oh, no, God. they are fascists. The Freedom Party, like we said a few weeks ago, was founded by former SS officers. They want a greater Germany, okay? They are fascists, okay? They're not even neo-fascists. They are fascists. Uh, 2017, next year, we have elections in France. We have elections in Germany. We have elections in the Netherlands. Who's polling number one in the Netherlands today? Right now, Gert Wilders, the far right. Uh, Marine Le Pen probably won't win the French presidential race. She will almost certainly make the runoff to hit the last two. And then with Germany, we're going to see the rise of the German AFD. So, yes, in, in terms of what Labour is internalising now, it's dynamics at present. I would say, yes, it's internalising Syriza and Pasok. It's also internalising uh, Topotami. I mean, it's actually got the dynamics yeah, yeah, now yeah, yeah. three yeah. parties in the Greek, political, or the Greek political scene. They're all inside it. We were in Spain last weekend covering the Spanish general election. Now, Podemos came third. They did not come second. The PSOE remained second. And because of their electoral system, what you see in the UK with Labour, like we've, we've said for a while now, has two bases north, more socially conservative, it's former heartlands, economically more left-wing than the population generally, fine, but socially it's a mixed bag. It's less mixed than places like London, like Manchester in terms of racial composition. On Europe, had very different attitudes. Those are the two bases. We see something similar with Podemos in Spain at the weekend, right? So Podemos could not get to the historic heartlands, the PSOE, which were Andalusia, for instance. Mm -hmm. So that problem of two bases, then you say the new left is really appealing to primarily still in this country, urban, uh, urban based young people, BME populations in Spain that manifests itself in a new party here. It can't do that. The big question for the new, the new left, the new politics of post 2008 and post 2011 is, can it scale up entirely to the historic constituencies of social democracy? Mm. Can you forge a social majority with the politics of a Podemos or a Jeremy Corbyn? And at present, that looks very, very difficult. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think that's true. I mean, one of the other things to bear in mind here, because I will always be the sort of extra parliamentary conscience on, on this show, is, is whether this kind of conflict has implications for people who are sceptical about um, the potentials for uh, radical change or systemic change in uh, or through parliamentary means or through sort of electoral means. I have historically been pretty sceptical about that and I think I think my scepticism probably remains. Um, I, 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 probably less than others, I probably have a slightly more complex position on this, which is that, um, you know, th these things are in relationship. And, you know, in many ways, what happens in Westminster sets the basic tone and scope of action outside of it. Uh, and these things uh, tend to interrelate. Um, certainly, you know, I said something on Twitter yesterday. <laughs> you know, I think it's probably true. I, the sense, you know, so... And one of the reasons I, I have been paying attention to this crisis so deeply is that, look, we are in actually in what could be an extremely, extremely significant and extremely dangerous political moment and certainly a constitutional economic moment as well. Um, the impact on the British economy isn't being felt yet. It will be. It will be in, you know, we're about to enter a recession. Um, Farage said as much, right? Yeah. A soft recession. Well, the danger is that, is that Farage is doing this thing of saying, oh, well, don't talk down Britain. He says this to Mark Carney, of all people. Um, and and you, Mark Carney's the governor of the Bank of England, for listeners who don't know. Um, and, 
you know, I mean, Carney's backed himself into a bit of a corner in terms of interest rates, but but um, that's not immediately important. Um, the, look, the problem with 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 this is that it builds this narrative of resentment and betrayal and. That stuff is extremely politically potent. It's it's the basis on which UKIP built themselves from a laughing stock party yeah. through to the determining political force of the past three months. Yeah. And that's really, really concerning. Um, the, one of the things, though, that is a danger here is, is actually not grasping the seriousness of the moment and... Uh, you know, falling back on these old nostrums about you know that that things things won't get too bad because there are systemic hedges against it or whatever. Like no, things can get really very very bad indeed. My my sense is uh, is that someone has set the house I'm living in on fire, um, locked all the doors, and people are arguing about the carpet. Um, you know, I I I really don't I I don't understand why the seriousness of this hasn't come across, but I, I think it's gradually getting there. My other sense is that, you know, in order to escape the burning house, we might have to crawl through the sewer pipe, and that's that's not a pleasant sensation. In terms, uh, of, in terms of UKIP, people yeah. thought that their uh, apogee, their high point was, of course, the May general elections 2015. They got nearly 4 million votes. After that, they did seem weakened, right? Farage resigned to only then return as leader about 24 hours later. They looked like a a spent force, which is saying something when you get 4 million votes, but that looked like their high point, right? And to an extent it was, because the Tories had deprived them of a lot of energy by promising this referendum, okay? They were playing a very dangerous game. Now, what's happened since then, and particularly in the last several months, and what we're seeing now in the last week, is that the outriders of British politics, the SNP and UKIP now, have far more power over popular, popular sort of, popular conceptions, in terms of the political orientation of the main parties, the direction of the country. I mean, this is just unbelievable. The mm. SNP now, we're looking at the breakup of the union. Yes. I mean, it's actually happening. Yeah. There will be a second referendum and the SNP will win it. You know, they will win it. Absolutely. Yeah, um, I mean, probably. Well, unless they're given a... Uh, there could be, you know, the SNP leadership might calculate it's better in the short term if they can stay in the EU and stay in, and stay in, uh, and stay in Britain. Maybe. The problem for them is, of course, currency. Yeah. Would they adopt the euro? Would they keep the pound? I think they'd probably have to actually start their own currency. That's what I think JP Morgan was modelling uh, this week. They said that would be their best, their best bet. UKIP, great seat for them. They came second there in 2015. 3,000 short of Labour, Hartlepool. Now, this is exactly the kind of seat you're talking about, James. Hartlepool, 70% voted leave. 70%. And Labour have a majority there of 3,000. So with an effective local organisation, a charismatic candidate, that's precisely the seat you would foresee Labour gaining, isn't it? Um, Labour losing, rather. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, one of the things here, I think, is so when we come to understand the referendum result, uh, people express it in economic terms, so that very often uh, the communities voting leave um, are were those sort of hardest hit or those who, who never really recovered. So I said, I said, I said to you before, and I think it's you know worth reiterating, is that the geography of uh, the referendum is not actually much to do with the crisis of two thousand and eight. The geography of, of the referendum is the crisis of the 1970s. It's the crisis of the industries uh, that were eventually destroyed by Thatcher and for whom there was never really any actual settlement and for whom there was never really any 
<laughs> you know any change in model. You know, so there is there is what we might call like a temporary fix under Blair. So Blair does this thing of sort of moving some some sort of civil service or public sector functions away from the south and towards sort of uh, you know communities where uh, where Thatcher's government had sort of destroyed the sort of bread and butter industries. Um, but this doesn't soak up a lot of the unemployment. There, are, there, are, you know, quite on the quiet. There's a lot of state spending to allow people to live their lives, right? So they're not going to die in poverty. Um, but there was never really any sense that these people would have a political voice, or that actually that there would be a settlement that had any dignity for them, right? So there's, you know, like, I, and this is actually something that you will hear very, very often is, you know, that 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 people feel forgotten or abandoned or. You know, or, or utterly at the whim of the state, uh, and this really, as um, Will Davies points out, Will Davies, sociologist at Goldsmiths, um, had him on the show. Great, uh, yeah, great show on neoliberalism. Yeah. Um, he he points out that actually the, there was a very very brilliant piece of political strategy by Dominic Cummings. This very very eccentric um, and quite poisonous character attached to Gove. Attached to Gove, maybe part of his team um, going forward. You know, looking forward to number ten, Michael Gove, the last Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. Um, um, you know, the, but he was the one who came back, came up with this slogan, "Take back control," yeah, and that is a piece of, of serious political work. You know, um, Will says it works on every di- level between the macroeconomic and psychoanalytic, and I think that's probably true. And on on the other side, you had the Remain campaign making these technocratic arguments yeah. because those that's the only thing that the left and right visions of the EU or of Europe or of sort of transnational organisation can agree on is that they are technocratic and left here I don't mean communist left I mean very soft sort of liberal yeah. left um, you know and that is unbelievably weak because it says you know let, let's continue in this state of you know voicelessness and and you know uh, uh, ignorance and 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 you know uh, shame almost and and they said no and that was you know however however reactionary and awful and so that that's one side of the leaflet the other side there is uh you know just an appeal to people who feel like they have been left behind by and this isn't a sympathetic left behind i think that <laughs> a lot of the ukip vote are people who uh feel left behind by social progress and i mean here now these are the voices in the south who are sort of you know uh aged uh shire racists who feel mm. that their country has been taken away from them uh and who don't in, want uh, a minority majority country yeah, process, and, right? uh, which is going to happen in many respects like they are right this, the the country has progressed and and <laughs> you know these you know, these people are you know these people hate gays they hate black people they hate yeah. women um you know the, you know that is also a core constituency in in one sense ukip's genius was to find a way of linking these people together uh, and and that is you know and that that is something we have to think about but you know by by all means like the ukip vote and this reactionary vote or the leave vote uh is not homogenous at all it's many many sections thankfully yeah yeah, yeah. right yeah. In, terms, in terms of take back control media scholarship would call this a personalizable frame personalizable so you would say take back control and this yeah. can mean an abundance of things with abundance of people on an abundance of issues um this idea about corbyn and the national interest so cameron called on corbyn to resign in Prime Minister's questions. And he said, for heaven's sake, man, resign, just go. First of all, now, why did he say this? Mm-hmm. First of all, he is a bully. Mm-hmm. He will say whatever he can to intimidate somebody. That's what bullies do. Uh, secondly, he, I, I said this in an IMO, did very well. He, uh, 
has effectively the worst legacy of any Tory PM since Eden, probably worse. Why? He's going to be responsible for the uh, diminishing of Britain politically and diplomatically in the world. He's going to be responsible for the end of the union that has ramifications for our Security Council seat, has ramifications for our states and, and, a, and a variety of international organisations. We're going to go into a recession. Okay, we don't know where this ends, but we don't know where it ends, but it's going to end somewhere pretty badly. So he's going to be held responsible for that and he doesn't want that to be his legacy right he wants Jeremy Corbyn to be included in that by the way Jeremy Corbyn brought home 63% of the Labour vote for Remain 37% of Labour voters voted leave guess how many SNP voters voted leave 36% so the difference between uh, Nicola Sturge and Jeremy Corbyn here is 1% and yet she's some political Houdini and he has to go okay who lost this referendum it was David Cameron it was the technocrats within the Labour Party, people like Alan Johnson, who, by the way, fronted the Labour campaign, completely incompetent. I mean, the invisible man, really. Completely incompetent. I mean, most uh, incompetent, I just want to say this quickly, yeah. most, incompetent, uh, most incompetent guy you could possibly imagine. And I'll finish on this. The journalists responding to Cameron calling on Corbyn to resign, particularly on the centre-left, OK? Uh, I'll name names, pretty, pretty you know, unsurprising. Jay Merrick, George Eaton, and so on. And so he's being serious it's in this national interest. I mean, that's just a disgrace. Wow. Take a step. I know it's, you have to respond with dig digital media. I know that. Take a step back and think why he would say that. It's about his legacy. It's about trying to implicate Corbyn in a catastrophe for him, his party, everything he believes in. He believes in the union. He is a Tory. He bleeds blue blood. This guy. His family goes back to Agincourt, okay? So I'll finish um, that point. Yeah. So there are a couple of things I want to bring up here, and it sort of returns to the Labour Party in, in, in the same way, right? Um, so there's a, a piece by John Curtis, who's uh, a sort of eminent uh, sophologist, uh, you know, very sort of uh, smart guy. He's the, the standard BBC go to commentator on election night to talk about sort of uh, election modelling and stuff like that. He points out that actually. Uh, it's a piece in the New Statesman uh, uh, that it is it is David Cameron and the Tory party who lost this referendum actually that it, it required them and it required him to convince his voters um, and not Corbyn to convince his John Curtis is actually not necessarily sympathetic to Corbyn incidentally and that's what makes that argument so strong um, but again you know, he's a good scholar though right yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. let's reiterate one of the things that is continually true through this conversation that again we can make these rational arguments to people uh, who are trying to depose Corbyn but the idea idea here, you know, it's a political conflict and yeah. it's about power. Yeah. Um, and so let's keep that at the forefront. Um, and so one of the, the, the things that is interesting here, and I think it's, it's worth bearing in mind, and when you sort of zoom out a little and look at the, the general picture, you think, okay, we should think about, you know, the way in which a focus on electoral politics, particularly at a moment in which civil society looks like it's going down the toilet on race and, uh, you know, builds on, uh, you know, stuff that's been going on for a while but seems to have spiked after the referendum uh, in terms of sort of racist hate incidents as, uh, you, know, em you know, emblematic is the, the halal butchers that's, or halal grocers that was uh, firebombed in uh, Walsall. Um, so, the, you know, that, that stuff is, that's the background to this picture. Um, and we should talk a little about crisis points because state politics generally... Um, and so, so the, the question then is, do electoral politics suck energy away from movements 
grassroots movements, street movements that are already sort of extremely sort of <laughs> uh, undervalued and underbodied and under uh, uh, you know understaffed in a sense, right? Like and that uh, you know are almost completely overwhelmed, um, you know, by by trying to just firefight on this stuff. Um, so that's the background to this. Generally, I would say state politics is about the administration of social relations, generally. It sort of tinkers within them, but tends not to uh, really reorder them, except at crisis points. And crisis points are moments at which, actually, economically or politically, the settlement becomes deeply, deeply unstable. Um, and that, And implementing solutions to that or new settlements generally comes from electoral outsiders. And that is sort of the story of the Labour government of 1945. Um, and it's also the story of Thatcher. Uh, and if you look at the way that Thatcher was reported on before she won, um, you know, you have a lot of press saying, oh, well, this woman is completely, uh, completely outside the consensus. She is, you know, an outsider. She's, you know, a kind of bizarre choice. So both of, both of those uh, governments, and I think... The reason I want to, you know, just mention both of them is that they, they, they are not, they don't just implement something that's going on. They are partly uh, dependent on the personalities and, and, and uh, contingencies of people within them. And that's important. Um, both of those governments remade basic assumptions about political life and about sort of social settlements. And it's very much worth reading those treatments of Thatcher before she, uh, you know, comes to power. Um, the other historical example here that I think about, uh, in, given the state of the Labour Party at the moment, is 1960. Um, and that is when Gateskill, who is, uh, you know, from the Labour right, uh, leads a parliamentary Labour Party revolt against a resolution adopted at the Labour Party conference um, for unilateralism, unilateral nuclear disarmament. And it's Gateskill who tells conference that the leadership of the Labour Party is none of the conference's business. He says the place to decide the leadership is not here, but in the parliamentary Labour Party. And so, you know, and this is, you know, ultimately the crisis is resolved in Gateskill's favour um, by, uh, you know, uh, uh, by actually a really kind of brutal uh, exercise in sort of uh, party management. Uh, some of the stuff that's going on at the moment is actually very reminiscent of it, sort of meetings to which like uh, the left suddenly finds it's not invited or mm. things that have gone on without being publicised. And so th this kind of stuff, you know, and and purges as well actually take yeah. place at the time, you know, this kind of uh, we must eliminate communists and Trotskyists from the party, bigger worry in those days uh, than it is these days. Um, so... Uh, that, that stuff is going on and, you know, it's really, it, it's one of the things that spells a kind of decisive defeat or, dis, you know, disarray for the, the, the left, the hard left within Labour in, in sort of the decade really following 1960s that, that, that they let the right win. So it, one of the things to say is that this conflict between parliamentary party and base is not entirely a new thing. It has always been there. I think it is reinvigorated by this expression of... Uh, social movements that have come across their limit points or have been able to make unable to make systemic change just through street mobilisation or through economic action or through uh, political demonstrative action and who have made a sort of electoral turn and haven't been able to do what Podemos or Syriza have done elsewhere and so have found themselves in this institution in which there is already a kind of cleavage point between uh, establishment and base and now that is coming to the forefront of those politics. And incidentally, it's not just Labour. The same thing exists within the Conservative Absolutely. Party. The Conservative Party has uh, much stronger safeguards against the membership expressing itself. Polling from the Bow Group, oldest 
right-wing think tank, yeah. um, says that actually the Tory base want Dr. Fox, uh, you know, disgraced former uh, Defence Secretary Liam Fox, uh, and Andrea Leadsom as their, yeah. their, their leaders. Yeah. Uh, but they won't get on the ballot. The, yeah. Well, yes, but the other interesting thing here is that Aaron Banks, who is the guy who funded the Leave.eu yeah. campaign, very rich man, wants to set up a right-wing political party like UKIP, but without Nigel Farage. And that could prove interesting in terms of what the Conservative base does there. Well, I think actually, yeah, the best move for UKIP now would be to get rid of Farage and start up a kind of Sidon Danos kind of bureaucratic, business-friendly, centrist, but ultimately centre-right racist party. That would be their best bet. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I, I want to talk very quickly. Alistair Campbell tweeted yesterday saying, obviously, Corbyn has to go. What would you expect Al Alistair Campbell to say a week ahead of Chilcot? Good luck, Alistair. Uh, I hope the uh, I hope the bail isn't too expensive. Uh, <laughs> Labour lost four million votes between 1997 and 2005. Four million votes. Do you know how many people voted Labour in 2005? Nine, I think it was nine and a half million. Ed Miliband last year got more votes. I think even if Labour lose seats under Corbyn, because we have such a strange system and he's got the entire party against him, who knows? I still believe he'll get in excess of 10 million votes. I think actually more than 11 million, which is more than 2001. So, Alistair Campbell, just pipe down, go live in some tax haven. That's what you want to do all along anyway. In terms of the future of Labour, now this is key. People who are saying, let's run a left candidate or whatever, they're saying, you know, Labour has to be, like the right is saying, has to be electable, has to be in power. And well, clearly you want, ideally, you want a left-wing Labour government in power. That's better than not having it in power. But for me right now, given everything that's going on both in the European and the British context, it's not actually just about winning power. Mm -hmm. It's about uh, having a party in the face of these forces, having a national organisation which is democratic, which can reinvent notions of solidarity and working class representation in the face of the re-emergence of fascism, in the face of the re-emergence of a crisis of capitalism, which is affecting living standards, wages, people's public services, their ability to access housing, buy housing, you know, even have children, okay, crisis of social reproduction. So it's fundamental labour becomes that organisation. That is more important than it winning a majority government. Because if we don't have that, we're in big trouble. And when Cameron said that it was in the national interest for Corbyn to go, and when that was parroted by uh, intellectually vacant uh, centre-left journalists, completely wrong. If you're a BME Briton, if you're a European migrant, if you're a working woman or man who will suffer uh, from labour standards, working standards being diminished in the coming years, because that's what this project's about from the right of the, law, uh, of the Tory party, yeah. if you're any of these groups... Okay, it is in your absolute interest that this man not only leads the Labour Party, but that he leads the country. Okay, so don't give me this crap about public interest. It is not in your public interest to have a leader of the Labour Party who advocates migration caps. It is not in your interest to have a, a Labour Party leader who has a mug saying, "Let's come down on immigration." And by the way, I'll finish on this. This is how bad these people are. This is how soulless these people are. I was the Joe Cox vigil. Joe Cox was killed by somebody who has clear links to the far right, okay? Clear links, a gentleman called Thomas Mayer, okay? She was killed by him. Terrible killing. She was being stabbed to death while he, he reloaded his gun. He shot her several times, okay? Disgusting way to go, okay? And I'm at a vigil. Who's there? Ed Miliband, West Streeting, Harriet Harman. They can say, what brings us together is more important than what takes us apart. This was one of their own and they can't even speak the truth. 
Okay, that's who we're dealing with. And it's frightening, quite frankly, that they can't even show emotion. They can't even speak the truth when one of their own goes in such a fashion. So I... I could not be, and a lot of people are probably surprised at my passion about Corbyn having to stay here, but it is so, so crucial. If you're an anti-racist, if you believe in working people, not being completely screwed, it's absolutely fundamental this guy does not move. Yeah, I mean, I think so. Uh, I think it's very difficult to see actually a political way out in this situation, though. But what I would, what I would say is that this canard about electability... Uh, <laughs> And no one, no one in the Labour Party knows really what they mean by electability. So, um, like, there's, there's, you know, Tristram Hunt, um, who sort of, you know, he, he wants to advocate this kind of one nation, sort of small nationalism, soft, soft, soft nationalism. Uh, Owen Smith trying to sort of synthesise a kind of progressive case for racism. I don't know. Um, so, so this is, so, th- but this is no, this is, th- this is the current gambit. But then it used to be. Uh, and certainly in the leadership contest, the candidate of the right, you know, Liz Kendall, she was like, oh, well, actually, what we have to do is win over kind of affluent metropolitan types, which um, the kind of Owen Smith, uh, uh, Tristram Hunt thing will alienate. Um, you know, there, there are real problems here in that actually, I don't think anyone in the party really knows what they're doing in terms of electability because it's very, very difficult to do because this is a longer term crisis in the bloc which used to find its political expression in the Labour Party. One of the things that most of its elements can agree on is a relatively powerful state that intervenes and redistributes in certain ways. Um, But there are other cleavages and other um, uh, institutional relationships which no longer function in the way that they have done historically. Part of that is to do with the fact that these, these institutions which undergirded sort of laborism and and gave people this sense that the labor party was something um and this is incidentally one of the things that we are seeing playing out at the moment is uh this sense that the labor party is something that above all must be preserved right like that that you know and and this is partly because people learn their lesson from the sdp split uh it's a very very strong marker in cultural memory in the labor party but but more than that there is a very very strong sense and it's one of the reasons that actually this this leadership coup thing is uh, is looked on with, with kind of great dismay by many of the party's members is because uh, you know their sense, the very strong intuitive sense for members of the Labour Party is to, to pull together, is that you don't unseat your leader uh, you don't attack uh, the leader in that way um, and this is even, that means that even people who are worried about Jeremy Corbyn, who have their reservations about him, still find it very hard to, to feel that they would vote against him in a ballot, so, so that's a, you know this is one of those 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 interesting difficulties. I want to again sort of zoom out here um, and say like, look, we're, we're we're in a moment where actually kind of uh, the, what we have taken for the basic and fixed political terrain of uh, uh, Westminster politics changing, and I think it, it's probably going to change very rapidly. Very interesting, I thought, was Theresa May in her Tory leadership bid speech. Uh, really pulling in a lot of kind of leftish rhetoric talking about injustice burning injustices and things like that and ending up with a sort of uh, she wants a small state but a strong state so this is someone who is combining a sort of one nation authoritarian 
small redistributive uh, law and order, but just and transparent law and order. This is this is a woman who sees in her possible future, I think, leading a coalition with a split from the right in the Labour Party. I think that is what's going on in her leadership speech. I think that is a political calculation. I think that's really very visible. I think that might yeah. happen. Also re-emergent Liberal Democrats, right? Who may, 10,000 people have apparently joined them since Brexit. They may win back some of these seats the Tories yeah, have in possible. the southwest. possible. Well, you know, I mean, remarkable how many of them the Tories took, right, last yeah, May. Yeah, but look, there is a, there's still an enduring problem here about the relationship, you know, about the basic conception of democracy that people have here. And, you know, I think, it, I think a lot of the Labour base and a lot of the people who have emerged in the course of the past five, six, seven, eight years um, have these very different conceptions of what democracy is and how it's going to work than people who are in the, you know, who are political representatives at the moment. A lot of political representatives see their job as not only representation, but a check against turbulence and passion. Yeah. There's always a key theme, as we've discussed before, in, in conceptions of democracy. But the other thing here is that if people feel like these people are just checks against popular expression, which I think is generally the case now, then they lose their legitimacy. Mm-hmm. And there's, you know, and, and you know... Both, I've said this before, but both the party and the base think they have the decisive choice here, and it's got to be settled one way or another. And I honestly don't know which way it's going to. Oh uh, yeah, I mean, I, briefly, I don't think there is a positive outcome here. I don't think there is a solution here. I think it's going to go one or two ways, and I think people with our politics have to try and make it go their way as best as possible. I think that means standing one hundred percent behind the present leadership. Uh, news today is that austerity is now over. By the way. George Osborne has abandoned his target. This is the BBC reporting it. I want to make a point about this, by the way. Has abandoned his target to restore government finances to a surplus by 2020. So that basically means the deficit was going to be eliminated. The deficit is, of course, the government spending more money than it's bringing in. Okay. Now, when they came to power in 2010, they said this would go by 2015. And then in 2015, they said this would go by 2020. Now, anybody with a basic understanding, not even of economics, of mathematics, could see that this was not trends. Looking at a line on an XY axis, all right, uh, knew this was never going to happen, okay? We've been saying for years, you won't get rid of the deficit, even with austerity until the mid-2020s, okay? He's now saying, of course, because of Brexit, well, Brexit means we can't restore the, the finances to surplus. Not true, okay? Not true. By the way, that point I want to make, BBC, restore, gov- restore, restore government finances to surplus. Do you know how many surpluses this country has run since the early 1970s? Huh? Do you know how many surpluses the Tories ran from 1979 to 1992? 1997 even. I think there was like one under Thatcher, two. There was like a couple under John Major. I think there have been five surpluses in like the last 25 years or something. We did a show on Margaret Thatcher uh, the day after she died and there is a link. Very, very hungover. Oh, well, and sleep deprived. If you go to NavarroMedia.com, look for the Thatcher is Dead show. There is... We are tasteless, aren't we? There is a link to the data. It's there. It's there. There's no restoring surpluses. The country doesn't run surpluses because of how capitalism has worked since the 1970s. Finally, this. Uh, the people who are now resigning, the forefront of the resigne- resignation people, who are so clever, who are so Machiavellian, who are so smart when it comes to power, they all abstained on the welfare reform bill. For many, that was the end of their political credibility, okay? They all abstained. These people don't just stand for nothing. They can't even see which way the tide is going, okay? Really, clueless. Furthermore, 
if they're such hot campaigners, Yvette Cooper, her constituency, I think, voted to, to leave by something like 75%. Right, Angela Eagle, like sixty-five percent. So her constituents, uh, her party members locally, they said the only complaint people had at the doorstep about Corbyn was he was for Remain. Yes, um, I so, and I think that's actually a very hard thing to overcome. Um, I mean, yeah, you can leave that to one side actually, and say that there are a couple of things I want to zoom out on because I think that, that actually. Uh, the, this crisis in the Labour Party is partly to do with our political system, partly to do with first past the post, partly to do with constitutional assessment, partly to do with the legacies of the way in which the left has expressed itself in this country, um, with Labourism more generally. Um, but, you know, I, I, I think it's also a symptom of a far wider problem, uh, which means that the rulebook of politics, certainly in Western Europe, is now actually rather torn up. Um, and that is that, look, at a point at which it became most contentious, we discovered that the principle of economic decision-making was no longer within democratic control. And this, this feeds into the same sense, so we already have a sense that uh, political elites or political representatives are far removed from democratic control or uh, you know, relationship to... Uh, the populace, people. There's a huge sense that people are not represented anyway, or that representative representation is now highly technocratic, or it's highly sort of uh, mediated in a way that means there is very little popular control. Um, and now you pile on top of that two things: one, that uh, economists were largely wrong about. Uh, the crash in 2008 and were wrong about the prescriptions to solve it. That incidentally is, you know, it's not to say that it would have been easy to predict or easy uh, to actually do anything about. It would be remarkably difficult to do those things. But the confidence with which people said they had solved the economic problem, that, that this, is no, this was no longer going to happen, means that, that the credibility of these people is just shot. Um, and as soon as people actually wanted to, to, to vote against these things, you realised that actually economic decision-making no longer was held within people's you know, political grasp. And I think that is the longer story here. Um, and this is the, one of the things that throws up people's desire for sort of plebiscites and referendums, uh, is the sense that actually that people want to take back a kind of control here. <laughs> you know, again, a reason that that slogan was a very, very good one. And there are other big things happening at the moment that means that these questions are not going to be resolved anytime soon. There's the story really that is coming to a head at the moment, which is the last six months about Deutsche Bank, which you know is is now I think um, in 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 one economist's words the biggest threat to global stability out there. I mean financial stability, and that's probably true. Uh, and the, the tremors from Brexit, you know. So what, you know, you think why was two trillion wiped off the global markets? It's not just because the Britain is a financial hub. It's because people are, you know, there is a, I think, a widespread investor sentiment, capitalist sentiment, that this is the first of a wave of populist uprisings against the settlement that we have now. And so one of the things I would say to members of the Labour Party, and particularly to political representatives in the Labour Party, is that this is symptomatic. Um, politics, as usual, is over. And in fact, it has been for some time. The institutions of democratic societies in Western Europe are pretty insulated from major political change in that they can hold it off for a while and hope it dies out. But I think we are waking up to the fact that that politics has changed in the course of the past five to eight years since the crisis. Um, and now it's starting to play out at a national level. I mean, we've been doing this show 
properly together for about four and a half years, right? Mm -hmm, yeah. We were the early adopters of this, right? <laughs> we've been saying this for so long. Um, we've got five minutes left. You're listening to Navarra FM here on Residence 104.4 FM, London's number one radio station. I guess we need to make some, uh, some concluding remarks, James. Mm -hmm. um, I just want to quickly say, in terms of what you're talking about, the, the, the historical importance of Brexit, anybody who reads the Financial Times, financial press, every article... Every article is an absolute despair, disconsolate mm. about what this means for British capitalism. It's a huge, huge, huge event. Huge. Um, and I want to add to that, look, if people say, first of all, so the thing about austerity, the argument about austerity has been won. And Labour's done that with Corbyn in charge, by the way. Okay. A year ago, the shadow cabinet was abstaining on precisely these issues. So they've managed to influence outcomes through not being formally in power. Like we said with the SNP and with UKIP, that seems to be quite an effective strategy right now. Um, but if people can vote to leave the EU, right, which meant a huge blow to British capitalism, and for some people on the left, that was a good enough reason to vote for leave. It wasn't for me in the end. If it means that you're voting for a uh, depreciation of the value of your house between 10 and 30%, currency devaluation, a recession. If people can vote for that, you know what? I think they might vote for more money being spent on the NHS. Mm. I think they might vote for rent caps and more council housing. Call me, you know, call me stupid, but I think it's possible. So the idea of, you know, electoral impossibility of left politics, this reveals that people have materially voted against their own interests en masse. En masse is not meant to happen. Britain was meant to be this conservative, risk-averse country. And I think that betokens, like you say, precisely where we are right now. James? Yeah, well, I'll say two things. I think that this crisis plays into a large one. Uh, and, and one of the things it demonstrates is that actually um, the country is quite broken. It's broken politically, it's broken economically. It has been for quite a while. Um, I think inarguably this conflict in the Labour Party is about the place of a left politics in politics. Um, obviously, lefting pressure is not going to go away if Corbyn loses, but its, its expression on the national stage is going to be hugely set back in England at, Wales, at a time right. in which huge political change is happening. I think that's very, very dangerous. The other thing I, I would probably leave people with is the question of how do you believe that we change things? And if Parliament is just a restraint on worker organising or whatever organising, then you don't care. And if you believe that change is won purely by external forces and Parliament reflects it, well, you might care a little, but you don't care that much. But if you believe that significant power and the tone of society, so a lot of basic things about what's permissible to do and say in public... Um, um, and what, how political action is conditioned outside of Parliament. If you believe that in part emanates from Westminster, then this is a very serious crisis indeed, and it's serious precisely because it says what is the scope of political action and what can be done about it. So I think inarguably, if you think those things are important and if you are worried about the way in which politics and the way that we relate to each other is going... Um, in terms of race, in terms of migration, in terms of our general orientation to difference within society um, and the way that we should we set up in general. Look, I mean, you know, our enemies here want to turn us into a European Singapore. Um, and by that, they mean a highly authoritarian society with very little worker protection. That's the dream of these people. Uh, and I think that it's, it's, you know, if you believe that, resisting that to be important, then you must think, about how that works in Westminster as well. Maybe not at the top of your agenda, but it has to be part of it. 60,000 people have joined this organisation in the last couple of days. That's a lot of people. Overwhelmingly, too, it seems, defend Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, to those people who have joined, I would say it's more important than just the click of a button. Uh, 
You need to go to local constituency party meetings. I would suggest you join Momentum. Perhaps most important of all, try and act as a bridge and interface between local communities, local movements around minimum pay, around housing, and the party. So, so, so important. This will take more than clicks. This will take lots of offline action as meaningful political activism always has. On that note, James, thank you so much. Mm-hmm. My name is Aram Stein. This is Navarra Media. See you same time, same place next week. Bye. Navarra FM is brought to you by Navarra Media. To find out more about our work, head to navarramedia.com and wire.navarramedia.com. If you've particularly enjoyed this podcast and would encourage others to listen to it, why not head to iTunes and, as well as subscribing to the show, leave a review. For regular updates, follow us on Facebook, Twitter and YouTube. Navarra Media, media for a different politics.